Well, I want to thank you all for coming out this evening. Um, I think uh, in a time of so much stress, uh, it's a good way of taking care of ourselves, uh, particularly of taking care of our inner being. Uh, With that notion and with that expression, we would like to open up uh, this part by just offering a song. Uh, uh, This is a Native American uh, flute. It's uh, called a, uh, actually it's a dual flute. It's a drum flute. It's in two keys. One, it's in the key of G. Uh, The flute is used in ceremonial uh, gatherings as a way of uh, exalting our voices to all the four elements and recognizing that we're never alone, that these elements are part of our nature. They don't define who we are, but they're certainly part of what we are. Earth, wind, fire, and heart, and water. So with that, I'd like to just kind of open up with a little ceremonial song. I've asked Kevin to help me with the heartbeat. And let's see, Cuckoo's helping me with the <laughs> with the shakers. So this is kind of just kind of just get in a meditative space with me around sound. to dedicate this song. I just found out this evening a friend of mine died last night. He was 51 years old. He was a cook. He had developed uh, leukemia. 
and uh, he uh, was living here in Oakland. Uh, he was an activist, a peace activist, and uh, we have one desire was that was to go to Mexico City to see his daughter. His uh, daughter had just graduated from the University of Havana, getting a, a medical degree in now doing residency in Mexico City. So he went to go see her and to see his granddaughter. And I talked to him Wednesday, and, uh, and he was on his way to Oaxaca. And uh, yesterday I found out he had been in a coma. And tonight I just found out he had passed. So uh, it's just a lesson about the impermanency of life and the importance of your life right now, of your presence in this place. So his name was Antonio.
Let's take a collective deep breath together as much as you can. Let's inhale and exhale. And again, nice full one as much as you can. And exhale. And just one more full one. Allow yourself to settle in. You have arrived. Welcome home. So take a moment and then thank any part of your body for its service. Maybe it's your feet. Maybe it's your heart. Maybe it's your hand. Just thank you taking care of me. And let yourself just feel that. And I thank you all for showing up for yourself and be part of this beloved community. As you inhale and exhale, imagine that as you sit here, the roots from yourself extend into the earth and they connect to every single being, all life, because we're all interrelated. And in this community, we respect each other, we care about each other. We have kindness and compassion. And this is the circle and the container that we create for ourselves. For as much as you can feel safe, for protection from harm, we have this to offer one another. Home. The Sangha, our beloved community.
beautiful Sangha. My name is Kay Zen, and as you're coming back to open eyes and the space, take a moment to look around and see your Sangha. And I'm going to share a few thoughts about the practice of joyful giving, or dana, in the Pali language. That's the language that the Buddha's teachings were first written down some hundred years after his lifetime. Um, joyful giving is something that we've all enjoyed just now coming into this space which is offered freely as a spiritual home where anyone may come and take classes and workshops and come to the evening practices and receive the teachings. And the invitation is to find that natural place in yourself where um, you probably already freely give somewhere in your life to someone, maybe a child that you love um, or a pet, where there's no tension or reservation about giving whatever it is that you're giving. Um, and the invitation is to find the edges of that and find where else you can give freely and enjoy that joy of giving. Um, I know that uh, people have come here when they wouldn't have been able to give even a couple of dollars, and that's the intention that anyone can have access to this space, and um, all of our events here are without charge. Um, because any of us might need that access someday. And we're able to give that access freely because of people who are in circumstances where they can give freely. So EPMC is uh, run almost entirely on Donna and our teachers and most of the people who do labor and work for the center are volunteers, they're not paid. Um, so the invitation is to give generously where there's no resistance inside you uh, or find other ways to give in your life, maybe with kindness. There are two boxes in the back of the room and on the side. Um, one is for the teachers and one is for the center. And thank you very much for your practice. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Yeah? Okay. We're going to take a bio break, and you'll be back in your seats in nine and a half minutes. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm on cue. Uh, <laughs> Let me just give you a quick uh, uh, bio of who I am and how I got here. Uh, my name is Manuel Vasquez, and I am uh, of a Chicano Mexica descent. If you happen to know what that means, I, my ancestors are from here, uh, First Nation. Uh, I came here to initially uh, to look for some answers. I started coming here in about 2009. Uh, at that particular time in my life, I had a particular curiosity about Buddhism 
that was precipitated through my employment. And at that particular time in my life, I was working as a uh, director of mental health services at Mission Mental Health in San Francisco, as well as here in Alameda County prior to that. So my quest was always trying to figure out where is peace? You know, what is peace? You know, my job as a psychotherapist and as a administrator was to, you know, to, to play the political role to assure that services were rolled out with the intention that people would get some form of help, but more than help, a sense of readjustment or peace. If you think about the training of psychotherapy, and I don't know how many people here are trained in psychotherapy, I, I think there are quite a bit of folks that come here. Usually the emphasis isn't around peace. And it's not based on transformation. And it's not looking at, uh, you know, uh, revolutionary change. But rather, it's about adjustment. It's about marketplace economy, psychology, making you productive so that you're not a public charge, me or you or anyone else. So there's not much peace in that objective, but that is the objective. So in doing so, I, I come across these teachings because I look at my life, I look at my professional life, and I think about the kind of peace that I was desiring throughout my lifetime didn't seem quite achievable. You know, I tried uh, obtaining peace through uh, maybe uh, getting educated, having greater mobility, having a sense of professionalism, having a sense of resource development for my personal life. And yet things began to fall apart because internally there was a disturbance. You know, I never particularly found myself so desperate in my life that I lost my job or found myself uh, in that type of desperate state because I had four children. And throughout my lifetime I had a a, a particular determination that I wasn't going to uh, leave my children at their own whims as my father left me. So with that, even though I had a relationship for 20 years and thought there was a lot of peace, it fell apart. Obviously, there wasn't much peace there. So when I got into mental health, I thought I would at least have a greater impact in terms of promoting uh, peace. But it was far from the agenda, and I didn't know that. And for that reason, I wanted to talk a little bit about ignorance and not knowing where to turn ignorance and being caught up in a cycle of suffering, psychological, emotional,
physical suffering and not knowing where the key of the door was. Ironically, in 1989, I was a director here in this site. This used to be a mental health center. You know, it was called Central Mental Health. <laughs> and so in there, during that time, my professional life had taken me to a place where I was responsible with, I'm sorry, did you still hear me? <laughs> I just got too hot. But, <laughs> you know, uh, I was responsible for looking at uh, moving people out of the state hospital into the community. The irony of that particular time and that particular phase of history, that there were a lot of people of color, not a super amount, but there were a lot of folks of color who got into the profession because of the civil rights movement, because of affirmative action, and because opportunities opened up from 66 to the late 80s. And I was a beneficiary of that. You know, I, I, I was fortunate to find myself in a situation that I was able to get an opportunity to go to school and to study social work. And went on to Arizona State and got a master's in social work. But that didn't give me the level of insight as to what was occurring in myself. So I like to read a couple of quotes and just kind of finish with a little story of my own personal life. And the quote says this, an ignorant man ages like an ox. His flesh may increase, but not his understanding. So that kind of says, well, you can get old, you can get fat, doesn't it mean <laughs> you're going to become more understandable. <laughs> A fool recognizes his own ignorance is thereby, in fact, a wise man. But a fool who considers himself wise, that is what one really calls a fool. Now, we're seeing some of that in today's political <laughs> uh, <coughs> Where ignorance is our master, there is no possibility of peace. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. So there, there, there is a recognition that there's more than just mental adjustment. There's peace. And that peace comes from freedom. And it comes from a freedom that is born within the individual. Now, Enlightenment for Gautama, the Buddha, fell as though he had found, as though a prison which had confined him for thousands of lifetimes had been broken open. 
Satan just kind of. Ignorance had been the jail keeper. Because of ignorance, his mind had been obscured. Just like the moon and stars hidden by the storm clouds, clouded by waves of deluded thoughts, the mind had falsely divided reality into subject and object. That's where racism comes from. That's where sexism comes from. That's where capitalism comes from. Mm. Self and others, birth and death, and those discriminations arose wrong views. In the prison of feelings grasping and becoming, this is the prison, the grasping, the wanting, the craving, the restlessness. The suffering of birth, old age, sickness, and death only made the walls thicker. The only thing was to do was to seize the jailkeeper and see this truth. This jailkeeper was ignorant. Once the jailkeeper was gone, the jail would disappear. It never rebuilt again. Take Nan Han, the Buddha enlightenment. What a wonderful teaching. Because it talks about the quality of the mind that gets released from its own duality, from its own internal struggles, from its own rigidity, from its own cloudedness. And what keeps us there is ignorance. So my question to you is how much do you want to learn? How much do you want to grow? Because if ignorance is what keeps us behind and keeps us back, there's a way out. There's a way out. I'd like to end with a personal story. I haven't been in this uh, for a long time. Unfortunately, I wish I would have came a lot earlier. Uh, but uh, throughout my lifetime, I've had these tremendous struggles of just not liking myself and making myself up in various ways. <laughs> Talking about makeovers and artistry, many ways. And I just couldn't see where was the pain. And for a lot of us, we come from experience where the pain in our lives has gravitated us, where the pain in our lives has created the situation, what we know clinically as PTSD, is a constant reoccurrence. But sometimes you can reoccur thoughts and go back to the same source, and it doesn't get fluffed up. It just stays there. It's kind of, I know why I'm miserable, <laughs> but you don't have to tell me. So, in the experience of Dharma, 
I went to Thailand in 2012 for three months. I went on a solo trip. I didn't know what I was looking for, but I was going to study Buddhism. I was sick at that time. I was coming off of a, 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 a terrible physical condition called hepatitis C. I wasn't a good candidate. I didn't see myself as a good candidate to go into monasteries and study because really my body would contort a lot with pain. And so I had to find my way of staying focused in that meditation endeavor. So I found myself, I went to a place called Chimrai, which is in the northern part of East Run, Thailand, or the Laos, Cambodian border. And I wanted to be a pl in a place totally <coughs> far away from Bangkok, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so I went to a place that was pretty remote. And I found myself living in a setting that was really quite, from a physical point of view, quite uh, lurid and quite, uh, it felt fairly unsafe. But I had a drive, and the drive was to know what was holding me down. So every morning I would get up and I would meditate. I would, as though I was in a monastery, I would do morning meditations, new meditations, afternoon meditations, go to the temple in the morning, go to the temple in the afternoon, go to the temple in the evening, and just try and, and, uh, the ardent endeavor of just trying to see, to see. And as I was in my hotel room, and nobody was around, because it, it somehow this hotel was abandoned, but it was real cheap. So it was like $15 a day. So, you know, even though I was there with a whole lot of spiders, it just didn't matter. <laughs> and I remember there was a moment there that I would find myself not sleeping, but just meditating, getting up, sleeping for a few minutes, maybe a couple hours, getting up meditating again. And I didn't know what was driving that, but something needed to be released. And in that, I began to see my life. Mm -hmm. And in one part of my life, where I saw this trauma begin in my life, it came as a picture of a little boy. A little boy who was placed in an orphanage because he was homeless with his sister and his mother. A little boy who stood in that orphanage for about a year, so that when his mother would come and see him when she could, he would just hold on to her legs and cry and say, don't leave me, but she had to go. And on occasions, he would see his sister in a recreational period in that orphanage. It was in San Francisco. And there would be a gate between them and she would pass him little spiders because he liked spiders. Little daddy loved me. And that little boy who grew up, 
began to know institutionalization and incarceration as a way of normal living. Mm -hmm. And by the time that little boy was 12, he found himself doing time in juvenile prison, but not in a normal sense, but most of that time occurring in a solitary confinement. That little boy was me. That was the burden. That was the ghost. That was the seed. The seed of being alone. And then growing up in life and wanting to fill that seed with every relationship and every mean possible because there was an emptiness there. But the penetrating view of the Dharma tells me and tells me about you that we have the capacity for liberation. Mm. We just need the love. Thank you very much. Thank you. Peace. Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> thank you Manuel. Can you hear me back there? Okay, great. So part of what Manuel was talking about is the last fetter, which is about ignorance. And for those of you who have been coming every week, uh, there's been teachings on all 10 of the fetters. And the, this is the last one, which is ignorance. And uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu says, there are these 10 fetters. Which 10? Five lower fetters and five higher fetters. And which are the five lower fetters? self-identity, views, uncertainty, grasping at precepts and practices, sensual desire and ill will. And these are the five lower fetters. And which are the five higher fetters? Passion for form, passion for what is formless, conceit, restlessness, and ignorance. And these are the high, five higher fetters, and these are the ten fetters. Now, there's not a whole lot of teaching on the fetters per se, it seems like from what I've read that you can enter into an enlightenment through any one of these doors. Sometimes you would have uh, to go through all ten of them as a practice where you're shedding. You're shedding this practice of ill will. You're shedding desire. You're shedding clinginess. And sometimes you can just enter into nirvana uh, by not having to go through all 10 of them. And part of what it was I was looking at was when the Buddha taught, this was primarily to the monks. So this, this seems like extremes, and this is part of what our practice is, which is the middle way. What's interesting about ignorance is that uh, Bhikkhu Buddhasasa says this is ignorance in a special sense because it does not mean ignorance as we know it, but in the everyday sense. But it means specifically ignorance of the Four Noble Truths and the delusion which presents us from seeing the real nature of impermanence and dukkha. So the goal here, through the fetters, is to reach nirvana, to reach enlightenment. Okay, none of us in here are monks, but if I'm wrong, forgive me, I don't mean to assume that. So you know, this whole everyday life, you can go on retreat, 
and your mind becomes very, very still. Your body is calm, and you, you finally get an opportunity to start to pay attention to what's going on in your mind. And there's a way that there's serenity, and there's a way that you can let go of some of the patterns because you don't have all the outside influence. So then you go home. <laughs> and then what happens? So much for your experience of nirvana, and so much for your feelings of enlightenment or understanding it, because now you have to deal with your everyday. Mm. So this, this practice of, of letting go of the fetters is really, can I live in everyday life and not be attached to hatred, greed, and delusion? Can I not claim? Can I not want what somebody else has? Can I accept things as they are? Can I not be restless, like have this, uh, for example, um, or be attached? And the example is, let's say you have a sit and you feel like you've gone very deep and it's like, wow, this is really great. And then you talk about it and you're like, I'm so pumped up for my next sit because it's gonna, you know, I'm expecting it's gonna be like the way it just was. So then you go sit and you're like, okay, when is this over? And you're restless and you're thinking about your appointments or what you didn't eat or you need to eat. Everything but the sit. Not even your breath. You're like totally someplace else. This happens to all of us. Our minds are, are, are that's what they're there for. To help us plan and to think about things and prepare and review and reflect. But that's not going to get you to enlightenment. By no means. You might as well say, okay, it's not going to happen on this set. Because the point here is we become attached. Become attached to wanting it the way it was. So then we sit down looking forward the expectation that it's going to be like that. That's an attachment. That's a clinging. And that can be a, a form of suffering. But we all, I believe, we all have had moments of pure awareness. It doesn't mean that this pure awareness is bliss. For example, has anyone had any kind of physical ailment where they've been in pain? Just raise your hand. All right, has anyone had any mental anguish, whether it's from a relationship or a job, or your own issues. Come on, everybody. Don't even try it. Don't even try it. Okay. My point here is when you are in that place, one, definitely it's suffering because it's painful. But for some of us, we're acutely aware this is what's going on right now. Maybe it's immobilizing you, or maybe it's bringing up old issues or old patterns. Or if it's physical, you're praying that the pain will go away. But you are right there with it. That experience of being with whatever is arising in the moment is liberation, is awareness. Because you're right here. You're not thinking about tomorrow. You're not worried about yesterday. You're not thinking about somebody's conversation. You might be right with your pain or you might have that experience, that anguish of that suffering from a loss. But it's right there. And then you go off to something else. 
So sometimes it does happen for us. We might not recognize it as that, but I do believe that there are moments that we have experiences of enlightenment. And what the Buddha was uh, gifted with was awakening. So when he became awakened, he didn't have any of these attachments. There wasn't nothing there because he understood the relationship to greed. He understood the hatred. He understood his delusions. He understood clinging and wanting, and he understood wanting things to be the way they, the way they are. I mean, the, wanting them to be the way he wants them to be, but this just not that way. It's just this way. So this this process, this whole experience of this list of fetters are tasks or roadblocks for us to work through so that we can be enlightened. And that enlightenment may last a while. That enlightenment might last just a few minutes or a minute or so. But that's an experience of being awakened. So it says that it's the last of the fetters to be completely abandoned because it is the causes of the rest of them, of all our feelings. So we have restlessness. And if we're ignorant of what's causing the restlessness, we suffer. If we are ignorant of grasping at practices and rituals, then we're not going to reach enlightenment. So if we are caught up in sensual desire, or me and mine and I'm all that like a certain person, there, there's a way that that's a clinging and it's an identity. And that can be a little, that can be hard. That can be harmful. It can, it can cause suffering. Not because of the identity itself, but your relationship to it. So when you can abandon these, meaning fully let go, then that's another step towards nirvana. And that's a practice. So reaching this, this stage, all forms of ignorance have vanished, and one knows everything that one must know. Suffering in all its forms, its causes, its cessation, and the path leading to its cessation, which is the Four Noble Truths. So we start with the Four Noble Truths, and we end with the Four Noble Truths. And if we can walk that path and truly understand the depth of what the Four Noble Truths is teaching us, then we experience nirvana. So we recognize there is suffering. We recognize there's an end to suffering. We recognize there are causes of suffering. And then we have a path to help teach us how to, to be liberated. And that's a practice. It's a lifetime practice. So a mental fetter is a chain or bond that shackles a sentient being, which is us. And this, and, and this is considered to be uh, dukkha, unsatisfactory and painful. And dukkha is a Pali word for suffering. So there's this cycle, and it's unsatisfactory, and it's painful, and it's perpetuated by desire and ignorance. And this resulting karma, this cycle, continue to live with suffering. 
So by cutting through all of those fetters, we can attain the bottom. Right. So that's our practice. That's it. <laughs> our whole life. That's a long, that's a high bar. So you might not want to even try to have nirvana. You might not even be wanting to try to be awake. You just want to be calm. <laughs> you just want to be calm and not have so much stress. Or you want to deal with conflict. Or you want to find a way to handle your partner or your child or your boss. So you start with simple things like your breath. Like let me be calm. Or let me find a way to use wise speech or let me use mindful listening so I can hear this child that I'm about to tell no to. <laughs> but let me make some room so I can at least make an effort, an intention to hear you. Wise intention is one of the, um, the eightfold paths. So uh, this week, if you can, try to practice with ignorance by becoming aware of your habitual actions, moods, thoughts, and judgments. This is a lot of work. So maybe just try it for a morning, or try it for a half an hour, and say, for this half an hour, I am going to pay attention to all the craziness that goes on in my mind. <laughs> but you gotta do it in a way that you don't get sucked into it. You know how those whirlpools go like that? So that's what can happen when we're watching our minds, if we're not ha have some, um, some space with it. And that space includes kindness. And that space includes care. And that space includes compassion. Oh, this is what that pattern is about. And instead of beating oneself up, or judging, or blaming, or criticizing, or comparing, it's like, this is where I am right now. Oh. So you're in the midst of a breakup, which is always painful. So you're not just experiencing the breakup, but you're experiencing every damn one you had before that. <laughs> and you're like, all I'm going to do is deal with this one. But it's a pattern here. So can you look at the pattern? Can you have compassion for yourself? And you say, oh, maybe I did something a little different this time. I ended it. Or it was wise that it was over because I don't want to repeat. But that takes practice. That takes kindness. That takes wisdom. That takes discernment. And that's what the Buddha, had. when he sat under the tree, the Bodhi tree, Mara came down which represents all these fetters and everything else. And Mara represented in the Buddhist life all his issues, his desires, the things he didn't want nobody to know about. Mara's like, I am going to work you to your last nerve. You are going to get up. And he's like, no, I recognize who you are, Mara. No, I'm staying. And he did. And through that process, he became enlightened. But part of that process was going through these fetters. He abandoned them all. He said, I see you. I see ill will. I see restlessness. I see sensual desire. 
and I abandon them all. I am not attached to them. I'm free of that. And he struggled. He had a whole night of that. And his witness, he touched the earth, and he said, this is my witness. So it's possible for all of us to be awakened, because what the Buddha means is to be awakened, the awakened one. And all of us are Buddhas. We are making that effort to be awakened. And it's possible. So the fetters give you, are like a, a road map on, this is what you got to get through to experience freedom. But you're not sitting around saying, okay, now I'm going to abandon ill will, check. <laughs> and I'm going to abandon restlessness, cross it off, I did that. You know, because then it's about what I did. And what's that about? That's ego. Oh, didn't catch that one. So there's some attachment to that. Look what I'm doing. That's not going to help you. But at the same time, you, you recognize it, it does help because it says, oh, I'm aware that I'm attached. Mm -hmm. I'm aware that I have this longing. I'm aware that I want to be proud of what I'm doing. Where's the humility? Where's the letting go of all of that? That in this moment, this is what it is. It's like this. So you could become more aware of these actions, these moods, these thoughts, these judgments, but just try to see them as something that is a habit of the mind and not you. Because who, who is you? That doesn't sound right. Who are you? <laughs> I know that's terrible. <laughs> so, just try to simply notice without making a big deal about it. Oh, look at my mind. Oh, look at what's going on. There's no I in that. Look at the mind. This is what's happening. So when you are on retreat, or like Emmanuel was talking about, when he went to Thailand, to Chiang Mai, he actually developed concentration, like big time concentration. And when you do that, your mind settles. And you let go of things that you thought were important because you see through the illusion of it, the delusions of it. But you still have to get on that plane and come home. Mm -hmm. And then what happens? Can you bring some of that, that calmness of mind? Can you bring that with you? Can you bring some of that concentration? So this middle path, this middle way that we practice, can you bring this to what you do? This is the middle way. The way of understanding is both and. So in a moment, I can see this is what my mind is doing. It's not about I. This is what the mind does. Oh, okay. And then you can watch it even some more and say, now, where is it going to go? So sometimes it can be fascinating, and sometimes it's like the most boring thing, <laughs> because it's like, why am I doing this? <laughs> What's the point of this? You know, because you can even just take your breath. Don't even get to your mind. That takes a while. <laughs> just watch your breath. When you're sitting, 
and you're trying to get still, just watch your breath. Just notice your breathing in, your breathing out, and then watch between each breath before you go to the exhale. After the inhale, there's a space there. Watch that. That's concentrating. That's like, okay, what is she talking about? But if you take a moment, or take some moments, because it does take some time, you can let that just be your focus. And you're not thinking about, your mind's like, whoa, wait a minute, I can't get in here. Because you're so focused on your breath. So you let go of some of the habitual patterns in that moment, because you're right with the breath. So when you walk, that's what's so fascinating about walking meditation. Every time you put your foot down and you're paying attention, that's a moment of freedom because you're right in this moment. And it's some people, and I know I find it hard, but when you walk slow, you have to pay attention to your balance. You have to look where you're going. So your foot lifts up and then it goes down with the toe and then the ball and the heel. And then you take the next movement and just focusing on that, for example, like the breath, that's concentration. That's awareness. That's liberation. That's freedom because it's in this moment. It's awareness. So we have these opportunities which sometimes we're not even aware of. Like when you're chopping vegetables, preparing a meal, and you're totally into it, thinking about the spices and what you need to add, that's concentration. That's a moment of awareness. You're thinking about how it's gonna taste and you taste the food and correct the seasonings. You're totally into it. You know, and there might be even some, some pleasure from it, like a pleasant feeling. That's okay. It's when you wanna go further and say, oh, I'm gonna do this every time. It's gonna be good every time. And you know it's not. <laughs> and even when you try, right? It never comes out the same. But if you can enjoy it right in that moment, that moment is an experience of liberation. So these fetters, another list of the Buddhas, this is only 10, but it's, these are opportunities for us to look at how do we explore and be with restlessness? How do we let go of our attachments to some things? Because it's our relationship to whatever that causes the problem. Mm -hmm. It's not the person, it's the person's behavior. You know? <coughs> like one of the things, uh, real quick story, and I want to end with this poem. I used to tell my daughter when she was in high school that I was really disappointed in her behavior when she would do something I didn't like. And you know, you know how you were when you're a teen, roll your eyes, ignore it, go mumble under your breath, go in the room, slam the door, and talk about how much you hate her or hate him or whatever. <laughs> you know, you all did it. So she would say, why do you say you're disappointed in me? I said, because I am. I don't like the behavior and I expect better. So then she goes to um, college, and she calls me, I think it's her first semester, and she's like, Mommy. I'm like, what? 
I have this teacher, and she says the same thing. <laughs> she said to us, I am so disappointed in you. I expect more. And, and she said, I already know what she's going to say, because you said it all the time. But she was so surprised that someone else would say the same thing. <laughs> you know? But that, that's part of it is like, can you let go? Can you be in a different place? Okay, I'm disappointed in the behavior. It doesn't take away from the fact that I love you, but I ain't feeling what you're doing mm. at all. Mm. So that's part of what we look at. So here's our behavior, and here's our self. We might not like how we, in our habitual patterns, like what we do. Does that mean we don't like ourselves? But sometimes it gets all mixed up. So then it can <coughs> get that tenderness is welcome. Care is appreciated. Kindness goes a long way. And compassion holds us always. And when we give that to ourselves, that little bit, that those moments, that allows us to be softer and soften our heart and soften the critic, the critic and the judgmental person and all of that. Because that's where the suffering is. So when we allow ourselves to have the taste of that soft, Oh yeah, I did the best that I could with this. I made mistakes, okay. That's a sweet moment. <coughs> we recognize that as a sweet moment. Can we hold that and say, okay, this is the best I can do. May I accept myself as I am in this moment. And that is a taste of it. <coughs> So I'm going to leave you with this poem. I'm going to end with this. And I think um, I thought of this poem because of the task of cultivating this practice. And if your goal is nirvana forever, it's a mi I bow to you. If it's just in this moment, I bow to you. The sacred life. There comes a time when you want to run. Run as far away as you can. Run from your life. Run from the task that is so large it cannot be done. But your feet don't move. And slowly, life opens up and health appears. Not in the form you expect but in secrets and winding roads and gateways into the world you long for but don't know how to reach. And the task doesn't get any easier, but life gets more beautiful with the richness you couldn't imagine and a warmth you have never felt as you directly face the immensity of what you are called to do. And that's our practice. And that was by Sherry Lovier. Thank you for your attention. So we have a few minutes for any comments or a couple of questions, a couple of few questions, if anyone has any. Okay, Carmen? Yes. 
Okay, after Carmen, after her, sister, raise your hand. Yes. Okay, thank you. Hi, Shar. Hi, sweetie. Um, I, I have a question about um, kind of like a subset of ignorance. Uh huh. That um, so I had a bad fall last week, and when I was at the med meditation um, last Thursday, I was in a lot of physical pain, and then there was also a concussion, so I was in like physical discomfort and then I was also like kind of having some fear around my like consciousness and brain. Uh-huh. And um what broke open as I was in the meditation was just this realization of being able to be in, in the present moment of, of like what the body was experiencing. Mm -hmm. Um but there was an area of it that part of why it felt like a breaking open was that I was realizing that there was this wall um uh, within my consciousness that was like refusing to believe like almost how bad it was. Mm -hmm. And and the, the way that I can say it in a way that mo makes the most sense is that it was almost like a, an area of belligerent denial. Um, and the, the way that I can describe it that makes sense to my understanding is it's almost like this ignorant that the mind, it's almost like the mind wrapping itself in a blanket of ignorance. Um, and, and it's like kind of a refusing to believe. Mm -hmm. And it was just being in that much discomfort and then finally like just having to like there was no other place to be but in the discomfort that i finally was like okay this is what this is but so the question that i have is like it, it feels like a particular subset of ignorance within the consciousness that surrounds like i kind of know i'm being ignorant but i don't want to accept that i'm being ignorant so i was wondering if you could speak to that aspect of of the the ignorance that's around like mm -mm, nope not gonna go there and then like you know how, how to work with that Thank you for um, oh, thank you for an easy question. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, wanting to stay in denial when your body's saying, "Honey, that's not gonna work." Mm -hmm. That's what you're asking me in some ways. The subset and how do you handle that and hold it? Is that what you're saying? Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. So. How I would imagine that to be is like another form of suffering. Because you're already in pain. And your body is saying, pay attention to me. And then there's the mind. This is the habitual mind. Here's a pattern that's saying, this isn't happening. And your body's like, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. So this habitual piece is where the hook is around the suffering. And if you were to explore, what is it for me to deny that I'm in pain? The other piece is, what is this habitual pattern, this pattern in the mind that wants me to, to pretend or act as if nothing's the matter, which is a deeper exploration. And I would invite that only when you hold yourself with kindness around it, because it's huge. I would, I could imagine that's not something you just sit down and say, okay, I'm gonna look at this and I'm done. You know, because like I said, when we have a breakup or something like that, it's not just that time, but it's all the times before they come. 
and it's, a, it's an opportunity, in spite of it feeling like terrible, to say, oh, look at this, look at what I do. Maybe it's a way to protect yourself or protect your heart because the pain is so great or some, somewhere in your life something has happened where you're saying, this is how I choose to handle it. But here's this opportunity to say, I could have a different. When you allow yourself to be with the pain, then it means the pain is saying, you need to take care of this body. And then some of us try to fight through that, and it gets worse because we're not taking care of the body. And the body has given us signals that I need you to take care of me. And then if you take care of the physical, in some ways you're also feeding the emotional and the heart because you're resting. You're acknowledging that I, I can't do anything right now. I just need to be with this. And that's a huge practice. So just take baby steps and say, okay, this is denial. Here's a pattern. What is this about? Let me investigate. And in that investigation, you begin to peel the layers. And be kind and gentle to yourself because they're there for a reason. You know, like uh, Manuel mentioned trauma. Sometimes we cover things because it was so traumatic that this is the way we cope. And your, your heart and your mind and your body and your spirit goes only when it goes to the place of recognition of wanting to do something different when it's ready. So that's another habit or a pattern to say, oh, hello. Do I want to pay attention to this now? Or do I want to do it again later? You have those choices. And all in all of it, the priority is to take care of yourself. And to be kind to your body. And not beat yourself up about even being in this place of denial. Can you hold yourself with kindness even when you're denying that you're even in this place of suffering? Can anyone do that? This is a practice all of us can try. So thank you. Maybe just one more. Thank you both. I had a question for Manuel, and I just also want to say thank you so much for your talk and your sharing. Um, and it's just so lovely to see new teachers and, and uh, to have you with us tonight. So one of the things you mentioned, I mean, there are so many things that were of interest to me, but really the, the pain of your abandonment and the idea that you were losing your mother, sure. and, then, and then in your adult life, trying to repair that loss through your relationships. And you know, the trauma of that, I think, is, is something we all can relate to. And we all have trauma at some level. And I was just wondering, as someone who is in the mental health profession, how, what is your insight, really, into bringing Buddhism and meditation together with what you know about how the mind works and that repetitive thing and how we try and repair, you know, we're constantly looking for ways to repair things that happened early on. And I guess just 
Is there something that helped you in Buddhism? Is there, was there, uh, you know, one of the concentrations, a mantra, just something to where you were actually able to open up um, to it, to see what that patterning was? I think I think the most important aspect was coming to the reality of the sutras that there was no permanent self. So my pain was the 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 holding of my pain was complementing that permanency of that wounded child all the time. So when I went to Thailand and I began to to meditate in that time, you know, there's a part of our practice that is tranquil mind, and there's the other part that is investigative mind. And I think what happens is that when we invest ourselves in the practice of samadhi, of tranquility, then somehow the heart and the mind is set to deal with what's going to come up. So when I had pictures of myself, you know, holding on to my mother or my sister giving me those, those little spiders, it wasn't me crying anymore when I was watching that. What I was seeing is that how much in my whole lifetime I was filling my life with people, items, relationships, trying to fill a hole that was there. And yet now, I can live with the emptiness, and it's okay. Because that's what the teachings teach us. That in this emptiness, there is joy. There's nothing holding you back. You're not obliged anymore. As the poems, as the reading said in the beginning, it's a prison that ceases to be. Now certainly that's one factor. There are many other ones. But at least that one was, gave me the sense of faith that I'm not that okay. I think what the transformative aspects of that was I was heavy in the habits, particularly drugs, particularly a lot of women. I was into a lot of habits, particularly lying. And yet those things began to drop on their own. They, be, they become so much the struggle of saying, no, it was the ardent practice, and it's still the ardent practice. It's still going back, going back, going back. It's, it, I think uh, spring uh, kind of depicts this very well. You know, you're, you're kind of cleaning up the dust. There's a storehouse of poop in there. <laughs> it's kind of just, you know, and we hoard that all our lives. So it gives us the opportunity to just let go of all that. But it's a process. But it's one that calls for your determination. It's one to look at the mind and its resistance and just to acknowledge that the mind naturally resists change, okay? It just, it's just its nature. You say, look here, you look there. <laughs> you know, it's its nature. 
you know, it only knows what it knows and it's comfortable and what it knows until it becomes miserable. This is a path that you're invited to live holistically and not that kind of duality. Thank you. I, I don't know. That. So I want to thank you for your questions. Um, I was telling someone the other day that when I come and teach at the People of Color SIT, what I appreciate are the questions. I feel like I am um, not pushed. I am challenged to answer in a way that embraces the teachings and as well answers the question. And sometimes I just have to take a breath and say, why did you pick on that person to ask the question? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's a practice. And I, I totally appreciate it so much because I learned so much from the query. And then even if the, the answer isn't to the best or satisfy, there's still the opportunity to investigate it more. So I just want to say thank you for all of the questions that I get from all of you. I cringe every time, but that's just that's my habit that I have to stop. But anyway, let's sit together for a moment for the dedication of merit. Just be comfortable. And to offer our efforts by breaking through our ignorance and experiencing nirvana, enlightenment, liberation, even if it's only a moment. May our merits be offered to all beings in all directions without exception. May all beings be protected from inner and outer harm. May all beings love and be loved. May all beings live with ease and well-being. And may all beings be free from suffering and its causes and conditions.
But that's fine. But you know, uh, uh, that's fine.
Then we bring this because see this has the transformation yes. the calmness to see. Yeah. And what you see is that you see that. Hold on, let me grab another one. So where I feel like, especially in our communities, we need both. And that's wisdom, why you're so yeah. wisdom. Because there's so few therapists and Oh, I'm not a therapist. But I just need people who have that disposition to know about trauma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.